0: I'm glad to be here with you today and uh, share some thoughts with you that I pray the Lord will use to help you and encourage you and strengthen you, strengthen me, strengthen all of us as Christians. You know, uh, we we live in a world of warning and warring, uh, warning about everything. Uh, I'm glad I grew up before the days of cholesterol. <laughs> and, They didn't even exist when I was growing up. But they exist now. Plenty of evidence to prove that, right? Martha cut this out of last Sunday's paper, I believe, wasn't it? Some time ago. Well, it's, it's Real Life Adventures in the comic section. And it says, warning, great big letters, warning, the Surgeon General has determined that whatever you have in mind is bad for you. Well, I want to disagree with that for just a few moments this morning, at least. For you, you had an idea to come to church today, and I'm glad you came. And I hope it will not be bad for you. I hope that'll be a good thought. Uh, There, there are a lot of problems in the world, and a lot of the world is at war. You know, you take a globe and you spin it, and you just stop it. Put your finger on it and stop it, and just about wherever you touch, it's going to hurt. It may be the Middle East. It may be Yugoslavia. It may be Pakistan and India. Maybe your house or your business or your heart, your body, storm of hell, your children, storm of concern, a lot of storms. We've seen the ravaging news night after night. From the Middle West, the storms and how they've dislocated life, destroyed homes, our houses, and places of business. And I'm concerned uh, about Yugoslavia. I have had the privilege of preaching there on five different occasions. And uh, every time I see the news about what's going on there, I hurt for people. We all who've been there, and some of you have been there with me hurt for those that uh, we don't know what's happened to a lot of them but you know the world and america in particular is is suffering a kind of a balkanization we're seeing war going on there racially motivated religiously motivated prejudice against other people because of their religion or their language and i see america dividing fragmenting in, into these warring camps and it concerns me, and I'm sure it concerns you. It concerns a lot of people. It concerns a man by the name of Daniel Boorstin. Uh, You may have read about him last Sunday in the Parade magazine. If you haven't thrown it away, uh, I urge you to take this and to read it. It is all good. I, I became a fan of Daniel Borston a couple of years ago when I read his book, The Discoverers. Uh, this is a man who was a Rhodes Scholar, a historian, a foreign correspondence, a correspondent, a Pulitzer Prize winning historian and teacher. Uh, the man who was a librarian of the Library of Congress, which is probably one of the most intellectual responsibilities anyone in America can have. And he has an article here, an interview with him, entitled The Greatest Danger We Face. And we're facing dangers as a culture and as a society. Uh, we're not creatively debating in America much today. We're destructively hating. We're not just reasoning together. We're ridiculing people. We're not discussing, we're cussing. We're not praying, P-R-A-Y-I-N-G, for each other. We are P-R-E-Y, praying upon each other. It's dividing us, splintering us, turning us like Yugoslavia into warring camps. Daniel Boorstin addresses that. The minister of America today is in the emphasis on what separates us rather than on what brings us together. The separations of race of religious dogma of religious practice of origins of language the speaker is daniel borston 78 a distinguished scholar who is the former librarian of congress the author of 20 books on the history of america and world civilization he says our country is still struggling with problems of intolerance and violence he confides that his greatest fears regarding the future of the united states are these i am wary I am wary, W A R Y, of the emphasis on power rather than on a sense of community, he says passionately. The separate groups in our country are concerned about their power, whether it be black power or white power, the power of any particular group. I think the notion of a hyphenated American is un American. I believe there are only Americans. Polish Americans and Italian Americans or African Americans are an emphasis that is not fertile. There's been so much emphasis recently on the diversity of our peoples, he continues. I think it's time that we reaffirm the fact that what has built our country is community, and that community is not dependent on government. It is dependent on the willingness of people to build together the best example of people building together an ideal society is to be found in the word of god plato said an ideal society is when people weep and rejoice over the same things an ideal society an ideal home an ideal business an ideal church an ideal school an ideal culture of any kind is when people rejoice or weep over the same things when we weep with those who weep and we rejoice with those who rejoice and if you want to look for a model of an ideal society the only place you're going to find the supreme ideal is in the word of God and in the people of God written about in the second chapter of the book of Acts the product of the proclamation of a new kind of message about a loving God created a whole new community. And I want to read you a description of that community and then we're going to see how it began and how it relates and what it means to us here is what an ideal society would be like and that's exactly what god came to do through his people was to create a society built upon the love of god and love of one another that would be would be a model a witness a testimony to the world as to what it would be like if everybody loved god with all of their heart mind soul and strength and their neighbor as themselves, as Jesus said. And here it is, second chapter of the book of Acts, beginning with the 42nd verse. They, we'll come back to who they were in a moment, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miracles and signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need every day every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts they broke bread in their homes they ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people of all the people not just their people but of all the people and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, let me say, wouldn't you like to be a part of a community like that? A caring community, a happy community, a fellowshipping community, a supportive community, a forgiving community, a helping community. That's what we're to be. And the day that he refers to are people who came to believe in the Lord because of the proclamation of that message by Peter and the other disciples, the first Christians. 3,000 of them believed it and this is what they became. Well, how did they begin? John, who was also a part of that same group, also there witnessing, also there working and sharing and fellowshipping, John wrote four books in the Bible. He wrote the Gospel of John and then three letters, 1st, 2nd and 3rd John, and then probably the book of the Revelation as well. But in 1 John 3.16, now, not John 3.16, that's the gospel. John 3.16, and you know that, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But that's not all John wrote. He also wrote this little book or little letter called 1 John. And in it, the first chapter, I mean 1 John 3.16, he says this. This is how we know what love is the love he's talking about in John 3 16 this is how we know what love is Jesus Christ laid down his life for us this is how we know what real love is real love is a a God of love who cares about us so much that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in this loving God will have life eternal life And what these people did at Pentecost was they fell in love with a loving God. Such a God had not been adequately presented to them in word, and it was not adequately presented to them in deed and in person until Jesus came. And he became the personification, the visual, personalized communication of the love of God to us. And he died for our sins. He rose for our justification to save us and to forgive us. This is what love is. And what we believe is this message of the love of God embodied and personified, incarnated in the person of Jesus Christ. This is how we know what love is. We don't know what it is until we see it in Jesus Christ who laid down his life for us. And then John three twenty-three, he says this. And this is his command. This God whom we love, because he first loved us, this is his command, to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded. Jesus said it. When he was asked by the scribe what is the number one commandment and he said love god with all of your heart mind soul and strength and your neighbor as yourself love one another love god first foremost primary love god and then love your neighbor because you love god and you've fallen in love with a loving god and you know that he loves the whole world and because he is living in you he lives to love through you to reach out to the world around you and that is the permeating power Of this ideal society that Jesus Christ came to create. To believe in him. Now believe in the New Testament is not a noun. It's a verb. It's an action word. The English word belief comes from two old English words. By life. B-Y dash. Life as often spelled in old English. L-E-I-F. Belief is not some abstract intellectual agreement that you have. Belief is what you live. It is your life. Belief is active, it's verb, it's action. It's not abstract intellectual agreement with certain stated theological propositions. It is a personal body, mind, spirit commitment to a way. That's the faith. It's an experience, not intellectual agreement, not mental assent. It is personal commitment. Matt Williams third baseman for the San Francisco Giants said baseball is an exciting game to play it's the most boring game in the world to watch and here's from a professional baseball player he said I don't think I'd ever watch baseball it's too boring now those of you who played a lot of baseball it's not boring to you as much as it is to maybe some others. Uh, I I love to play golf, and therefore I enjoy watching golf a little bit on television. I'd much rather play golf than watch golf. In fact, I pretty much go to sleep when I start watching golf. It's a good way to start your Sunday afternoon nap. But baseball bores me even more. I played some baseball, but baseball for me is just like watching paint dry. (laughs) Just sit there. Matt Williams didn't know it, but he was describing Christianity, my friend. Christianity was not meant to be watched. It was meant to be played. It was not meant to be observed. It was something to be experienced. And you'll never know the joy of it until you play it. You'll never know the thrill of it until you experience it. You've got to get inside of it to understand it. Like the woman who had been on a tour and they went to Paris she came home was talking to her friends and one of her friends said oh did you see the magnificent rose window in Notre Dame Cathedral she said yes we saw it uh, but I only saw it from the bus we didn't have time to get off and go in you know what she saw she didn't see the rose window she just saw a great big black circle in the side of a building you don't see the rose window at Notre Dame until you get off the bus Go into the church and look up to see the magnificence of that artwork and the story it communicates. My friend, Christianity is never understood from the outside. It can only be observed in all of its color and glory and grandeur when you experience it. And... Christ gets in you and you get in Christ. Paul's favorite term. Used 160 times in his writing. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. That's the beginning of an ideal society. Individuals who have gotten in Christ. John uses the word belief in the gospel of John 80 times. Do you think he's trying to tell us something? Eighty times John says, believe, 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 believe. Put your life in it. Buy your life. Live it. Experience it. Don't watch it. Play it. Don't observe it. Get into it. Get off the bus. Get inside the faith. Get involved in it. And it becomes the most exciting, exhilarating experience you can have. And that's what began to create this whole new society. And look at what they did. Back to Acts second chapter they were together let me point out something else seven times seems like I'm in a lot of numbers this morning seven times although this is impressive to me seven times in the first two chapters of the book of Acts you will read the word together seven times describing the church they are together they are together, they are together, and the word means more than physically together, though they meant that. It says they were together in one place. But the better translation of that word together is one accord. They were of one accord, and they were in one place. We need to be in one place. Every now and then I run into Christians who are so, so spiritual they don't go to church. They say, well, I believe in Jesus, and I'm very spiritual, but I don't believe in organized religion. I don't believe in, in, in the establishment of the church. Well, there's no other kind. Uh, The word "established" means literally from the dictionary to set in operation. Everybody in the New Testament that became a Christian belonged to the church. You'll not find anybody who became a Christian that didn't join the fellowship. Isolated, individualistic, detached Christianity is a contradiction in terms. You become part of a family or you're not in the family. It's a relationship. Not because you have to, but because it's inevitable. It's not essential. It is inevitable, though. It will inevitably happen. You say, well, I said, well, I, I don't like it being organized. Well, you wouldn't have liked Jesus' disciple group then either. It was organized. They had a treasurer set something in motion. It had a pattern to it. It established something. Be very dangerous to build your life upon a pattern that does not exist in the New Testament. And everybody in the New Testament was not only of one accord in love of God and one accord of love for one another, they were in one place together. They worshiped together. They studied together. They ate together. They fellowshiped together. They witnessed together one accord. Now, listen, that word accord doesn't mean they were all alike. They were not all alike. Their personalities were as varied as the personalities in this room. We're not all alike. It doesn't say that we all have to be the same. It says we're all of one accord. This piano over here all the notes on that piano are in tune with each other. Is that right, Eleanor, Charlotte? All the all the 88 notes, Tommy told me that number this morning, 88 notes on this piano, and some pianists like Eleanor and Charlotte play on all of them some of the time. If, if playing music was only hitting middle C, if Christianity was just my life and my witness and my work, my middle C, if Christianity was only... It was only that. We'd only be hitting one note. If playing the piano is only hitting middle C, heck, I can play the piano. I walk over and hit middle C. I can find it. I know where it is. No, music is using all of those working together. We do not all play the same instrument. Look at an orchestra. They're not all playing the same instrument. They're playing off of the same score under a common director proclaiming a positive melody. That's what the church is. Some treble clef, some bass clef, some half note, some quarter note, some this, some that, but all working in one accord for the benefit of the body and for the witness of that body, that ideal society, to the world. That is what the church is, and that's why Jesus Christ established it. It's to be the ongoing revelation of His Spirit through a body. His body, the church now, He said. We are His body. And so they had everything together. They shared things together. They prayed for one another. And they did it because they knew Christ was in them. And when Christ gets in you, you are never alone again. Ever. The next time you see the cross not a crucifix. I'm talking about an empty cross because the cross is empty. He's not on the cross. He's not perpetually being crucified. He's not in the tomb. It's an empty cross and an empty tomb because it's a living Christ. The empty cross should stand for you as a symbol not only of His death and resurrection, but let the cross stand for you as God's plus sign. God, through Christ, brings a plus into your life. The law is negative. Life is negative. An attempt to have an ideal society without the leadership of God is negative. It won't work. The world keeps working from the wrong end. It keeps trying to solve the problems backwards by beginning with man. God says, you've got to begin with me. And when you begin with me, I become a plus in your life. And I'll give you power you've never known. And I'll give you my presence forever and ever. I'll never leave you, never forsake you. And so as we're told in the 18th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus said where two or three of you are gathered together in my name, there am I with you. There am I in accord with you. In divine mathematics, one plus one equals three. Martha and I have a third person who brings us together. The Christ in me, reaching out to the Christ in her, and we are together. Two plus two doesn't equal four. Two plus two equals five. In your family. He is here. We've gathered together today in His name. He is here. I do not know what He has said to you, or is saying to you, or will say to you if you're willing to listen. But he has promised to be here. Making a difference how good or bad the sermon is. Making a difference about the music. We've all done the best we could to share the talents we had to praise God. But any impression you have deep inside is not from this preacher. It's not Buckner Fanning. It's not now, never has been, never will be. It's the Spirit of God witnessing to you through this marvelous music. He said something to you. It was not the choir. It was God. Who are we? Just a voice. Like John the Baptist. Just a voice. So he's here. He's here with you and your suffering today as surely as he was with the children in the fiery furnace. Do you remember that story from the Old Testament? When those three guys were thrown, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace because they continued to worship God and they turned that thing up seven times over. They were going to incinerate these guys. And they went down there to check on them. People that got so close to it were burned. They finally were able to look in there. And they were walking around in there like it was air-conditioned at 65 degrees. And it says, there is somebody walking around in there with them. There were not three there, there were four there. What do he look like? And the answer came back, he looks like a son of God. you get in your fiery furnace you may be in one right now some of you are in terms of health or work or stress he'll walk around in there with you he will never leave you and he will never forsake you he is the great plus in your life because of that we become the together place. Church is to be the two, not G-E-T-H-E-R, The together place. We are here together. Two plus two equals five. One plus one equals three. You're not alone. So there are two of you now, Christ in you. And we as a church are to be In our Sunday school expressions, in our Bible study expressions, in all of the groups that we meet together, all of those are to be open, unconditional kind of relationships that reach out to the people around us. Because, you see, that early church was not only here, now hear this, to be here together, G-E-T-H-E-R, they were to be here together. They were left here to witness. And it says they added to their number every day. That means that every Sunday school class, every Bible study group, every service of this church, everything we do is not exclusive, it's inclusive. It's not conditional, it's unconditional. We're to reach out and bring in those. Let me ask you, if your Sunday school class has become a little tight circle, where you all just enjoy being with each other a lot, and that's marvelous. But people that are out there on the edge, or maybe a little further out on the edge, they get kind of left out. Oh listen, we're here to gather. We're here to reach out. We're not here to be exclusive because it's the message of the unconditional love of God and it needs to be presented unconditionally to the world we live in. Every Sunday school class ought to be adding to it daily. The church ought to be adding to itself daily, reaching out, touching the lives of other people, ministering to people, bringing people to Christ, bringing people to spiritual health and wholeness. We're here to be together, but not as a little holy club. We're here to be gatherers. Together we gather the whole world. And when we do, we become the ideal society. And who wouldn't want to be a part of a fellowship where they loved you and cared for you and reached out to you and lifted you up and encouraged you and as we read in Hebrews and read here in the book of Acts, how supportive they were of one another, encouraging one another, and praying for one another. You know what will happen? You get a Sunday school class like that, it will begin to draw people. You get a church like that, it will begin to draw people. That's the reason some of you are here today. You've met some folks in this church, and you've found a, a note of love and acceptance and affirmation and encouragement from them. Maybe you wanted to find out what the rest of this church was like. Well, I can tell you right now, It's not perfect. But I can also promise you, we want to be what Jesus wants us to be, and that is the people of God reaching out to anybody, irrespective of who they are, where they're coming from, what they've done, what their name is, what their color is, what language they speak. We're talking about a new family, a new nation, a new kingdom, the ideal society of the kingdom of God. And this being the litmus test that Jesus Christ wants to use to prove to the world the validity of his Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. A number of years ago, I was preaching in Yugoslavia. There were three of us there then. John David Hopper, who is still here in our church and going back to the seminary in Ruslikon in a few days and was then a minister to a Southern Baptist representative to all of Eastern Europe... John David Hopper and Yanda Woodfin, Dr. Yanda Woodfin, classmate of mine at Baylor, professor at Southwestern Seminary, professor of, of the philosophy of religion. The three of us were invited to the Baptist Seminary in Novi Sad, Yugoslavia, to speak for a week to pastors on the subject of evangelism. John David talked about the history of evangelism, being a church historian. Yanda Woodfin talked about the theology of evangelism, being a theologian. I talked about the practice of evangelism, being a pastor and an evangelist. And so we had these seminars and discussion groups and all. Had a number of students there at that seminary in Novosad. Some of the rest of you have been there in subsequent years to this event. Well, after one of the services one night, a group of the students came up to me, eight or ten of them, and they said, There's a village over here. There's no church in that village. And they don't have any kind of services there except orthodox services and they have one church there, and they won't allow any others there. Would you go out there and preach if we go out there and get a crowd? Now, the only place we can get a crowd is to get them in somebody's home, but we've got a home where we can have this meeting. Will you come and preach? And I said, sure. When well, they said, well, a village. I picture a little place of eight or 10,000 people. They said, there are about 60,000 people that live in this village, and said, so we're going to go out there and take our guitars, and we're going to sing and go out on the streets and go to the places where the kids hang out and And we're going to invite them to come to hear you speak down at this home. Now, they said, you need to know this is an illegal meeting. (laughs) Now, they're not going to hurt you. So the worst thing they could do to you, and this is back in the dark days of communism in that part of the world. So the worst thing they would probably do is just tell you to go home, get out of the country. But it really wasn't. I'm not trying to dramatize. I really didn't feel any danger, though they did tell me that. There was risk for them, though. There was realistic risk for them, because they lived there. They said, "We're going to do it. We want to do it. We will do it if you'll come speak." And I asked Dr. Horak, pastor of the First Baptist Church in Zagreb, Yugoslavia, who has been here uh, years ago, and some of you may remember. Dr. Horak has a Ph.D. in economics and also a law degree from the University of Belgrade. But for over 30 years, pastor of the First Baptist Church in Zagreb, spoke fluent English. And I asked Dr. Horek, I said, will you go and translate? He said, sure. So we went out there. This house would hold maybe the rooms that we had available, maybe comfortably hold 25 people. There were a hundred or more people inside, standing outside the windows, everywhere. We were sitting up at the back to the wall there, and they were all there in front of us on the floor, sitting in chairs everywhere they could get. And uh, kids were giving their testimony, and they were speaking, of, cor- of course, in their language, Serbo-Croatian. And, And Dr. Horek was sitting there and he was whispering the the translation in my ear so I'd understand what they were praying or what they were saying or the testimony they were giving. And then some of these kids got up and they sang. They played their guitars and they sang. And uh, I got up and I spoke and Dr. Horrock interpreted it. And then I gave an invitation. I said, would you accept Christ as your Savior? Would you let him into your heart and into your life? And then I sat down by Dr. Horrock And then young people began to stand up and he would whisper to me. They were giving their testimony. They were saying what he said is true. It, it is, it's the word of God. God loves you. And God came in Christ to forgive you and to save you. And he was interpreting this quietly in my ear. And then another, and then another, and then another. And then a girl stood up and began to speak and then just broke down in sobs, weeping, and just fell back in her chair. And so kids gathered around her, began to put their arm around her, began to talk to her and pray. Got very quiet in that room. Dr. Horick leaned over and whispered to me and said, this is what she said. She stood up and said, God, if there is such a person as God, I want to know you and I want to have what these people have. And she started to weep. Do you know what led her to a personal experience with Jesus Christ together? The loving atmosphere of that family.